morning. Um, happy Father's Day to all of you. Um, I know uh, it's been a good weekend. We had good weather, so I know hopefully had an opportunity to get out and uh, spend time together or just get some things accomplished. I know I did. And so, uh, But glad that we do have the opportunity to be here this morning to study and spend time together. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our class. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here to lift you up and exalt you for who you are, what you do, and what you continue to do. I pray that you help us as we uh, learn how to make the right decisions in life, that you will instruct us on how to live out your word, and that we will uh, shape ourselves uh, to look like your son. Father, I pray that you will forgive us when we fall short, give us the strength that we need to continue to do your will in all things. We pray this to you in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Uh, so we are continuing our study, thinking about uh, Christian ethics, biblical ethics, ethics in general, whichever one you want to look at. Um, we're building a case. A lot of what we're trying to do over the course of this class is to understand how we think, how the world thinks, so that we can have proper dialogue, so that we can... Uh, fully teach people God's word and understand where they're coming from and maybe understand where we come from and the way that we think and the way, the way that we operate. Uh, this class is going to piggyback onto where we were last week. So it's going to have a little bit of crossover. So if you weren't here, I'll try and elaborate on it a little bit so that we can continue on. Um, but we're looking at how we see the world or how individuals can see the world and understanding how our morals and our ethics play into that. Um. So this is a continuation, but before we get into our main discussion of where we were last week, I do want us to look at an example of understanding the world through a specific book. So far we've looked at, in passing, Psalms and Proverbs, these uh, pieces of wisdom literature. Each one of them has this insight into how the world operates, or at least how it should operate if we have a solid faith in God. Uh, if you'll remember, the book of Psalms opens up with Psalm chapter 1. It's kind of the introduction to the entire book itself. And it talks about what kind of man uh, is, can be found with God's word. It's like a tree planted by the waters. It's solid. It's firm. It doesn't have anything to, uh, to do with people that are going to pursue sin. It doesn't entice people in the wrong kind of way. It has and is driven by God's word. And so you look at Psalms, and then so when you read the rest of the book of Psalms, that's what it pertains to. It, it's this insight into the world. And so you have some of the Psalms that are going to sing out praises to God because of who He is and what He has done. But it's also going to look at the world. Uh, you know, you get a little bit of the historical accounts in there that they'll talk about, uh, here's where we've come from as the children of Israel, and God has led us. Although there are evil people in the world, and it seems like they prosper, how can we really prosper in God's Word when things seem like they're going down? Well, he looks back on history and he thinks, well, God has always provided. He was there with the Israelites in the wilderness. He can be with me. Another example is when you go to the book of Proverbs, these short little snippets that you get into uh, the world, these pieces of wisdom that are going to guide you or shape you or challenge you and, and make you put rubber to the road and think, all right, this is what I should be doing. I need to be a good, moral, ethical person. We see law, we see standards, we see a lot of things come out through the book of Proverbs. If you'll remember, though, you have to walk through the gateway at the very beginning. In Proverbs chapter 1, it talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is where you start. If you want to understand the rest of this, if you want to understand a proverb, if you want to be able to write it on your heart and share it with others and live it out, you need to fear God first. If God is our priority, that's going to shape who we are and what we want to accomplish. 
Well, Ecclesiastes is going to do something very similar to that. Depending on uh, your understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes, we, we kind of play into it a little bit and think this was probably Solomon that wrote it for various reasons, but we do know the, the main writer is just as the preacher. Uh, if it was Solomon, and he wrote this later in his life, maybe it's his letter of repentance. He's looking back on some of his past decisions and thought, man, I just live things totally incorrectly, total uh, given over to sin. Or if it's anyone else, they're looking back on their life and they're thinking, man, I made a lot of bad decisions from youth all the way up till now. Whoever this person is, they seem to be in a, a right place understanding what they should be about. Whoever the author may be, we get this insight into the world in Ecclesiastes. And if you take a journey through the book, and I would encourage you to sit down and read it in its uh, entirety, it's you know 12 chapters. It goes really quick. There's a lot in there you might get um, caught up in, but I, I ask that you'll just read it all the way through. And I've got just three guiding points, and it, it pertains to what we're trying to accomplish over the course of this class, is what are we about? You begin the book of Ecclesiastes, and he has this phrase that he's going to interject all the way through. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's a striving or a chasing after the wind. When he speaks of everything is vanity, he says the world is actually empty. When I think about striving after the wind, the illustration that comes to my mind is my dog sticking his head out the window trying to sniff the air. It accomplishes nothing. He thinks that it's doing something, but it does nothing at all. That's a striving after the wind. If you strive after something that's empty, it doesn't fulfill. It doesn't accomplish anything at all. This writer is looking at the world and he says, it, it's empty. Eventually he's going to tell us how to make it full. But looking at things that you can pursue, he says, there's nothing there. And you understand where he's coming from when you get to chapter 2 because he's then going to introduce you to, here was my journey to understand the world. He takes the phrase in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and essentially he's saying, you know what, I said to myself, heart, you be my guide. Whatever you want, whatever pleasure, whatever desire, you get to decide and I will follow through. Imagine if we lived our life that way. Whatever amount of pleasure and desire we wanted in life, that was going to be our guide. That was going to be our main focus in life. Well, that's what the author of Ecclesiastes did. He said, heart, you decide what you want to do. And he goes through this journey and you can follow him all the way through it. He says, I pursued um, possessions, knowledge, people, relationships, good things, bad things. He said, all of it. I went after everything. He said, I told my heart, you decide what you want to do. When you get to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, starting in verse 1, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before time runs out, go all the way back to the beginning point. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, all right, as a 28-year-old, as a whatever old you are right now, don't you look back on certain situations in your life and you thought, man, if I only knew what I know now. Had I not made some of those really bad decisions earlier on, I would be a lot better off here. I mean, we all do that. We look back on our past and we think, man, had I not pursued that, I would have saved myself a lot of heartache, a lot of despair, a lot of pain, a lot of grief, whatever that may be. Well, that's exactly what Ecclesiastes is telling us. He looks back over his life and he says, I pursued all these things and they were pointless. They accomplished nothing at all. It was a vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But when you get to the actual end of the book, how does he tell you to get more out of this life? What's his final comment? What's his final suggestion for how we can have the fullest and best life we possibly can have? What's the last part? Fear God. Keep his commandments. 
Why is that what's going to fulfill us in life? Well, because whatever passion and whatever desire we want to pursue, we tell our hearts to be a guide, it's going to come up short. It's going to be empty. There's not going to be anything there. We're always going to be displeased. We're always going to want something more. And he takes us on this journey, and it's the same journey that you see in literature, in movies, in people around us, pursuing things that in turn create nothing. So we look at biblical examples like this and we think, all right, I can learn a lot from Ecclesiastes. Now, how does this pertain to what we're trying to accomplish? Well, we have to decide the content of our life. This goes back to where we were last week. If you draw a distinction between what is morals and uh, what is ethics, morals is what you put in the suitcase. You're packing to go on a trip. You're going to organize your suitcase. You're going to have objective things in there that you can compartmentalize. You can say, this is for this day or this is for this um, purpose. That's what morals are. They are the distinction between what, uh, what is right and what is wrong. You can organize your luggage. You can organize your life. You can put certain parameters around you and say this is right and wrong. But that's different than ethics. They're associated with one another. Ethics is taking those things of what you believe about what is right and what is wrong and see if you can live them out. So you may have a really strong argument for this is why I don't kill people. Okay? Say, well, I have biblical information that tells me not to murder. Um, And then... What actually produces murder? If you go to the book of James, James chapter 4, he says, What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? He says, Why do you steal? Why do you kill? It's because you want something else. So you look and you say, oh, Okay, I have a strong stance on murder because you know the, the scriptures say don't kill anyone. But then you can start shoring it up a little bit more and you think, Well, what would lead to murder? Well, what about anger and strife and greed and all these things that may make me want to take someone's life in a selfish way? It's not just the action itself. It's the motivation. It's other things that you can show up around that singular decision so that when you're in the midst of a moment and you have this really strong stance, your suitcase has been packed with what's right and wrong about a certain decision. When you're in the moment, you can be clear-headed. You can do that with anything else. Plug into there um, your stance on... Sex outside of marriage. As we're trying to train people that are in that particular stage where uh, they're trying to decide, you know, what should I do in these moments like this? Well, I go back to Ecclesiastes. He said, remember, you know, in the days of your youth, we train kids that don't be in a moment where you have to make a decision. Stay away from moments like that. Because the reality is we may have a really strong stance on something, but maybe when we get in the midst of making a decision, we don't always make the right decision. And why do we fall prey to that? Why in the midst of a moment of weakness do we choose weakness and desire and selfishness over what is right? We've already packed our suitcase. Why do we forget what's in there? So that's what we're trying to accomplish. That's what we're trying to shore up is understanding ourselves a little bit more. And that led to this, is that uh, how do you determine what is moral? Well, there's a lot that goes into it. The overarching theme, of course, is that we have Scripture. God has revealed his mind, his will to us, and he says, here's what you should be about. Here's what you should be doing. Sometimes it's just the action itself. But then you go deeper and you think about the motivation behind a particular action. You think about the consequences of where that action will lead, not just what pursues it, but where will it come, uh, what will it produce later on. But then just you in general in the midst of any decision you make, what's your character like? 
You might be able to mark off each one of those and you think action, motive, consequence. I've weighed all those out. I'm going to choose what is right. But internally, you may be full of darkness or corrupt. That character, that virtue, that value is off. When we're trying to determine what is moral, there's a lot that's going into this. It's not just the objective thing itself, but it's everything shoring up around it. And that's what took us to um, our trolley situation last week. Um, I I have enjoyed a lot of different dialogues with you guys from uh, talking about this particular scenario. And if you'll recall, uh, we won't rehash everything, but I do want to uh, remind you of of where we were. But this is to accomplish a little bit more, and I want to give an insight into this so that we can go on. We had a scenario that there is a trolley or a train, depending on which one you prefer, uh, that is barreling down a track. The brakes aren't working. It cannot be stopped. And there are five people on the track ahead of you. You know without a doubt that as you go down the tracks that these five people will be killed. But you do have an option. You can veer off on a sidetrack, and there's one individual there. Which track would you choose? You have the decision. You can choose one over five. Which one would you choose? Now, as we discuss this together, uh, we all have a lot of perspectives on this. And honestly, we all want to get out of it, right? We don't like this. We don't want to deal with it. We want to avoid it altogether. How can we, how can we come up with a different scenario, a different way? But here's what's fascinating. Where we are right now with our understanding and looking at our demographic of knowing we're Bible-believing people in here, we have a strong stance on murder. We have a strong stance on choosing good and right, because what would Jesus do, right? That's what we want to plug in. What would Jesus do in a moment like this? But ask people in the world that are not guided by biblical ethics, what would they choose? And why would they choose that particular option? Okay, most people are going to say, well, I'm going to go with the one person, right? Because you're going to add up the total of five lives versus one. You're going to say, well, the amount of pain and suffering that's over here, five, and you've got one, I'm going to choose the one. So if you're in that situation, you're going to choose that. Would it be any different if you were not on the train, you were not guiding it, but you had the option that you were at a switch operator, and you were going to decide the one over five? Does that give you a different perspective? You're not in the train itself, but you're you're observing it. You're seeing where it's going. But it can also be compounded, and and this is giving a little bit more insight into how people think. So allow me to uh, complicate this a little bit more. And this is the same scenario that's being thrown out in ethics classes. Um, It doesn't matter where you are. This is one of the the main scenarios that people are going to view. Is what if you take away the the track, and instead of being at the switch operator or being on the trolley, you're on a a bridge up above. The train is still going. Five people are still doomed for death. doesn't matter why they're on the tracks, okay? (laughs) They're there. Um, And you're up here on this bridge, and there's another individual there. And he has a very large backpack, and he's strapped in, and you have counted the cost, and you have determined that if I push him over the edge of this bridge and he falls on the tracks, it will stop the train before it gets to them. That's how big the backpack is, okay? So allow our scenario to go. For those of us, or those that we may have a dialogue with in the world, they say, well, I'll choose the one over five. What do you think most people would respond here when you ask, would you push the man over the ledge to save the five? Why? <laughs> so the the guy carrying the backpack would be a lot bigger than you. 
Okay, so the proximity to it would be a lot different. Okay. What else? Well, play with my scenario. It is 100%. Why would most people choose not to push the guy over when they would choose the one life if they were going to be on the switch operator? No, it's fine. Go ahead. Sorry. Innocent bystander that we have now brought into our scenario. What were you going to say? But you're not wearing the backpack. You don't have the. You don't have. Uh, it would be altruistic. It'd be the decision. Well, I'd want to. You know, sacrifice myself. I would do that because you know that. What would Jesus do? Right? He's going to. You know, he's going to give himself to save everyone. But we don't have the ability to do that. Um. When you talk to most people, you're going to say, well, it's a lot different pushing someone off of a bridge instead of being able to change the switch operator. Why is that? Now, for us, we have this code written within us because of our maybe our upbringing, our training, maybe just something that's built within us, or maybe it's our true view of Scripture that we would say, well, that's murder to push someone off. Well, why do you believe that that is murder? Well, because of this, this, and this. Okay, we have, we have unpacked our bag. We're pulling out the contents. We're showing people, here's what I believe about murder. But what if someone in the world does not have our worldview of the Bible? How do they make this process of, it's a lot different to push someone over the edge versus running them over, just one individual over with a train? Why is there a distinction there? Now, to give insight to where we're going next week, God gave us innate morals. God created human beings with this reasoning and this pull within us that we want to choose what is right over what is wrong. And we have this sense of morality about us. You can't escape it. People in our world are going to say, well, we create morals. We create what we consider to be right and wrong. We decide what goes into the contents of the bag. We go to the scriptures and we say, well, this is what God says about it. But why is it when you go between different nations different cultures, there's commonality on what is right and wrong. Why is it a general rule of thumb, and you do have exceptions, but a general rule of thumb across, uh, between cultures that murder is wrong regardless? Why do you have between cultures that stealing is wrong? And expand that to, well, stealing not just possessions, but a spouse. You know, things like that. Why, why is there commonality between what people put in the, the contents of the bag, the contents of the bag. Why is there commonality between them? We should be able to come out, and this is where our argument expands even further, is that God has put something within us. God has created us in a certain way to be able to recognize light and dark. Okay? And so when you give scenarios like this, and however we want to try and approach them as much as we can and get out of them, when people begin to ask this to people in the world, and you see how they respond, you learn a lot about morals. And here's an example of it. Why do you have this, uh, this battle between choosing one over here or pushing someone over the bridge and having a, you know, a disagreement? Well, I'm not going to push him over the bridge, but I will choose one over five. Well, this is where you get into the philosophers. And you think, 
how do people outside of Scripture come to a knowledge of what we as a community or as a society or as a culture should do as a nation? What determines that? Judgments of whether an act is right or wrong should be determined by a consideration of rights and duties in society. Here's what they're saying. We determine what is right and wrong based off of will it help a group of people or not. It is more beneficial for that group of five that if I were to take out the one individual in order to promote them because the cost-benefit analysis is better for them. It's the majority. Whatever helps the majority or whatever helps the society the best, that's what we're going to pursue. Don't you see that come out in politics? Don't you see that come out in just how our world operates? Is that the cost-benefit analysis of what is best for a group of people, not what's best for God. I mean, look at our biggest decisions that are going on right now uh, about abortion. And we're going there in a few weeks, so I don't don't want to show my hand too quickly on that. But think about the dialogue that's going on. Think about how people justify uh, abortion. And think about some of the arguments that are coming out against it now. The cost-benefit was, well, whatever helps the individual, the mom, with disregard to the individual that's in the womb. In order to justify that, you have to turn that individual into nothing or allow it a certain stage before it becomes something. You see, you start weighing it and you start thinking, well, who costs more? What's the, the, the value of life? What's the value of an individual? And that's going to permeate a lot of things, not just that singular scenario. That's why all this matters. Um, and it can get as complicated as you want. I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible just so we can observe, just so we can see. So I wanted to put that back before us, uh, that scenario, just to bring it to our minds if you weren't here uh, last week and just so you can know where we're going and what we're trying to accomplish. But let's back out a little bit. Let's see if we can get a, a grasp on how people see the world. We have our, our glasses on that show us the world through the Bible. right? We see individuals, we see people as souls, created in the image of God, that are worthy of God's love. That's how we see the world. We see souls, eternal souls, that are going to have heaven or hell. The Bible shapes that. I have glasses on that allows me to see that. You take the glasses off and you put on a different pair, and how do other people see individuals? Are you just a stepping stone? Are people around me just a stepping stone to accomplish what I need to? You allow me to go up the ladder. So I'll use you at whatever cost to advance my individual desires. So whatever I want, I can use you to help me accomplish that. Or maybe I put on blinders, I mean on glasses, and I think, well, we all have something in common. There's something about us humans, so we're all going to work together to accomplish something more. Politics are created that way. Um, World religions, and we're about to see, are created off of things like that. So we all have a worldview. Ours in particular is shaped off of the scriptures. But allow me to categorize because I think categories are great and I like them. Uh, And I'm going to put them into a few boxes of how people think. Here's the the simplest one. And I say simple because most people are going to ascribe to this. You can call it Wig if you want. Um, These are going to have a little catchy names because I I found an article that I really liked. Um, These are not the... Uh, academic names for each one of these worldviews. These are the ones that Billy likes, okay? And they're going to stick in my mind. So, Wig, what you see is what you get, okay? That's what this worldview is. What you see is what you get. 
The world itself is it. There's nothing else. You've got individuals that fit into this world. You've got people, and we're just people. We've progressed through evolution, and we're just at the top of the chain right now. But given a certain number of years, we might be at the lower rung. What you see is what you get. And when you die, that's it. So you have your time right now, whether you're given a certain amount of life, whatever it may be, and then when it's over, it's over. There's nothing. People that ascribe to this, they're going to say certain things like, there are absolutely no absolutes, which I love. You know, you can't tell someone else uh, what is true and objective and what is right because we each get to decide. Everything is relative. You can trust only what you can see, feel, hear, taste, or touch. Whatever your five senses allow you to do, that's what you can pursue. There's nothing else. There's nothing beyond this world. It is what it is. What you see is what you get. There's no truths, only individual truths. Listen to songs. Listen to um, talk shows where people are, you know, just they're just interjecting these little one-liners, and they're like, you know, you got you have to find your truth. You have to find what is best for you. That's people that ascribe to this worldview. I'm only here for a short amount of time so I can pursue my passions, my desires, and I get to determine what is truth. So this is the first one. This is what atheists are going to ascribe to. Um, There's nothing else in the world. There's nothing beyond it. There's nothing before it. It's just here. Now this is in contrast, um, and this is a step away from it. Like I said, these are just uh, the, the terms I like, the haunted worldview. Okay, so uh, you've got your individuals in the world. And instead of having a solid box all the way around the world that, you know, there is no getting away from it, there's, there's gaps. There's entrances into the world. Okay, there's interferences if you want to think about it that way. Now, you may start pulling in mythology and you think about some of the world religions in the past. How did they get to where they are today? You know, some of them are just completely dispelled. You know, the Greco-Roman, ancient Greece, you know, all of those mythologies, they've all gone. But where did they come from in just their idea that there was something outside of this world? It's not just what you see is what you get. That there might be a little bit more interaction that's beyond our vision. So they started having these gods and goddesses that would interact with the world. And you could tick them off. You could do something that would make them mad. Uh, one of my favorite stories uh, with the Persians, I love reading about the Persians. Those are the one, they come in and they uh, take over um, Israel and they take over um, the Babylonians. And one of their leaders, Xerxes, was probably one of the more well-known commanders. He is barreling across the world gathering troops. Everywhere he goes, he enlists people. So it's a snowball effect. He keeps gathering people as he goes along. Well, he's about to cross over this one little gap in the water where uh, he wants to build a bridge across it. A really cool feat of uh, architecture that he floats rafts out there and he builds a, a, a bridge on these boats. Well, as he has a bridge on boats, a storm comes, completely destroys his bridge. The water has just taken everything down. He hears about it. He commissions some of his soldiers to go to the sea and they get whips and they get chains and they beat the sea for its disobedience. Okay, that's the kind of world that people like this would live in. That, you know, we have gods that interact with the world, 
Um, and sometimes we could tick them off, and maybe we need to appease them, maybe we need to offer sacrifices, but it still puts man in a place of authority that he gets to decide a lot. And not just gods and goddesses, but there's a lot of other things that are inter- interfering with the world. There's things outside of just man and what he can reason, what he can do. Uh, it's more complicated than that. And then you've got the add later, uh, added layer that when you die, you may have spirits that come back, hence the, the haunted worldview, is that you might have a, a chance to come back or do something or interact even beyond death itself. So you have ancient religions, but there's still little bits of this that are around today. Um, we may not see it a whole lot, but with Wicca and um, witchcraft. And so a little bit of that still lingers, but for the most part, people don't ascribe to this. The other one in this is going to hit a large variety of people, is the dueling Yoda's worldview. I like this one. Um, when you think about Star Wars, you have this battle between good and evil, light and dark. Well, there are people in the world that are going to feel the same way. What guides their decisions? They have the world, but there's interference. And you can have the option, will you pursue what is good, or will you pursue what is evil? And there's this balance, and there's this shift back and forth. And so you go to Oriental cultures, and they still ascribe to this. You go to Taoism, Taoism, and they are going to say, well, we have this force that comes in that sometimes is good, sometimes is evil, and, and it's the yin and yang. It's a battle. It's a swaying back and forth. Um, an old uh, Native American tradition that went along with this. I remember hearing about this going through school and uh, reading about some of these religions, but talking about there are two dogs fighting within me. The one that wins is the one I feed the most. It's that kind of mentality that people ascribe to this. You train yourself to be indifferent to pleasure or pain. So stoicism. So when you read Acts chapter 17, what Paul was dealing with, it's people that were ascribing to this, is that we deny pleasures and we, I mean, we deny pain and we pursue something more. And humankind is called in a no-win situation. It's just being tossed to and fro. So you have the dueling Yoda's worldview. This one uh, we may not come in contact with a lot. However, I think and a lot of this pertains to mission work. Okay, It's not just, okay, yeah, we don't have these religions in our society right now, and we just disregard that. But actually, now that I think about it, um, when you get to this omnipresent super, super galactic oneness, um, you may think about Indian cultures. And hearing in our news about, um, I was about to say the Indian mosque, the, the one that was established across town, what was it I uh, just saw in the news? Um, Hindu, yeah, thank you. Um, you know, it, these religions are coming in, but we support at Dalreda the Gardner Fund uh, and Ricky Gudum, a lot of ministers that are in these cultures that are fighting against this kind of religion. Now, they have, you know, all these great gods that they have, you know, thousands and millions of gods. How do you dialogue with someone like that? How do you talk to someone that's caught in this? And what does that really look like? You have individuals, and they're in a world that is not firm, it's not standard, and that's why it's got the little tick marks all the way around it, is that it's whatever you want it to be. What you're trying to pursue is the great I. You are caught in this karma or incarnation uh, process where you just keep coming back and coming back and coming back until you reach a certain point and you get out of this. And you have the impersonal absolute. You have this, we all get to be a part of God. You know, we think, all right, well, that's just in these Indian cultures that are like that. 
But you do see little nuances of this um, coming out in like the New Age thought. Is that I want to be a spiritual person. Well, what does it mean to be spiritual? I have to be in touch with myself. What I want to accomplish. Um, it comes out. You see these little uh, leanings all over the place. You can do anything if you just believe in yourself. The Christ is already within you. You just need to realize it. All spiritual paths lead to the same destination. You may have a conversation with somebody. They say, yeah, I, I agree with Christianity and Islam and Hinduism and whatever else. If you talk to somebody like that, we may think, you know, these are people we don't cross, but it's true. All paths, all spiritual paths lead to one individual, one God. Or maybe we are all gods. If you haven't seen somebody like this, you haven't had a conversation with somebody, it, it, it's there. But now you have a category to put them in. But And that brings us around to where we are. The biblical worldview. What does the world look like through our lens? Well, we have people. We're here. We can know that. But we also have the world that has interferences. There's a spiritual realm around us. And then we've got God and his angels interacting with us. And then we have stories and understanding the scriptures that talk about Satan. And we think about there's still this pull between good and evil. Why do people choose evil? Why does evil exist? Where does evil come from? Is it, is it always promoted by Satan? Is it, uh, you know, how did it come into being in the very beginning? Well, we go back to the very beginning. We go back to Genesis and we see where did evil come from? We see a temptation. We see a decision. We see a path from the beginning of man and woman to where we are today, that there's this battle of desires within us. We find that God tells us, I won't allow you to be tempted more than you can handle. I won't allow Satan and his, his demons, his entourage, to have control over you. You can pursue something more. The, world, the biblical worldview is the most rewarding overall. If we can bring people into that, it gives answers give solutions. But then you have a slight change from there of what's called designer religion. Essentially, you can create whatever you want. What, however you feel for the day, that's your God. Whatever you want, whatever you desire, you get to be the designer and the creator of it. I don't, maybe phrases like this, I'm not into organized religion. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Whatever works for you, works for you. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it's okay. We hear it all the time. We see it. That's the way that people think. So I want to introduce that mentality because that shapes people's morals. If they're not going to the Bible to determine what is right and wrong, what to put in the suitcase, where are they going? Where does their standard come from? Is it just the, the inward leaning of, I don't like that, or I don't want that? Or is there something more? Is it just whatever is best for the society? What exactly? Um, how do people determine what is right? So I wanted to bring that in, and that's going to allow us uh, to go into this point that's going to carry over into next week. How do we make a case for objective morals? All right, first off, it's important to determine the difference between objective and subjective. That's probably one of the worst things of trying to figure that out. 
Um, to determine if something is objective is I'm going to describe something. So you see this pew, all right? I can give you, all right, it's made of wood. It's firm. It's got a, a seat cushion on it. I can tell you all about the object. I can give you characteristics. I can give you standards and say, this is what it is. You know, this is the type of wood. I'm describing the object. It's firm and it is what it is. But if I'm going to say something is subjective, I get to determine how I see this object. I can say, well, it, it looks comfortable or it doesn't look comfortable. I would like to sit there. No, I would not like to sit there. Subjective is how I feel about the object. The object has characteristics. It is the way that it is. You can't get away from it. The other one is my personal opinion. So that's the distinction between objective and subjective. Subjective is the subject deciding how they feel about the object. So when people say, I just don't like that. I don't know. I just, I have a, a weird feeling about why murder is wrong. I have a weird feeling about why, um, you know, adultery is wrong or why stealing is not okay and why lying is a problem. I just don't feel right about it. That's subjective. The object itself would be, well, God tells us what is right and what is wrong. So uh, there's a little bit of a distinction there. So allow me to introduce these really quick um, for the day of making a case for objective morals. And I'll allow you to respond to it and see what you notice. Objective morality, so saying that there is actually right and wrong, best accounts for the way we talk about moral matters. If there is no right and wrong, why are people in the world trying to talk about it? Why does it matter how you feel about any one of the topics that our society is struggling with right now. Right? Why, are people, why do people get up in arms about how they feel about whether something is an injustice or something is just not right? Why are people defending that? What do you think? If they're not saying, well, I'm trying to support God's word, right? That's our purpose of, I want to pursue what is right because this is what God wants for the world. What incentive do people have in the world? Why do they care about what is right and what is wrong? Okay, selfishness. Okay, so the fact that our nation is, in a large part, based on putting things in category of right and what is right and what is wrong, people look at that and they say, well, who are you or who are those ancient people that got to decide what is right and what is wrong? And so changing for the sake of change or maybe opening up the parameters a little bit more um, could be a guiding force behind that. Yeah. What else do you think?
Mm-hmm. Well, sure. And so you've got where, um, you know, a particular group wants to separate themselves because the whole, the majority, may not agree with what they consider to be right. And so they're going to find a, a group that's going to support their decisions or what they do. Because, you know, you think about this, we say, all right, I know what is right and wrong because God says it. So when we go into the world and we see people that say, well, I don't agree with you. Well, we will say, well, I know what is right and wrong. Here's what the scriptures say. And they say, well, that's not my code. That's not my standard. So I'm going to go find people that support that. But here's the, here's the problem, though. And this is why we have a dialogue about moral matters. Is that if someone's going to describe and say, well, you know, you get your truth and I get my truth and we can be different. That should allow for a united society to do whatever they want to, but what do you actually find? Those groups clashing with one another. Why? Because each person that says this is how, this is what truth is, or this is the, the, th- the way that things should be right, and this is what should be wrong, when it conflicts with someone else, they understand that there's a conflict, and they don't follow through on the same principles of, well, you get to determine what you want, and I get to determine what I want, and we can just live in happiness. No, you should believe like me. And that's where... The clashes come from. Now, from the scriptures, we say, well, that is our guide. Like, God is our guide. But how do you take that in truth and love? And there's a lot that goes into that, and we could spend tons of time. But making a case that there are actually morals, there's actually right and wrong, you can decide what goes in the, uh, the bag. You can decide what you pack into the bag. It's not up to me. It, I don't get to decide what I'm carrying. God says, here's what you're going to pack. Here's the contents so that you can live them out. That is what objective morals are. So just by the fact that people say, you know, yeah, you can have your right and wrong, and I can have my right and wrong, but then they disagree. There's something, there's this pull that tells us, no, there should be a standard. Are being uh, 
Yeah, and so it's not just the majority that gets to decide. You know, because if it was, because that's where people are going to say, well, you, it's the cost-benefit. Whatever helps the majority is the best for society. So if you have the majority that agrees on this, that determines what is right and wrong. Versus there actually being a standard, standard of this is what we're trying to meet as a society or as a culture, as a nation, whatever. We're trying to get up to this versus let's just count it up and see what's best. So um, making those kind of decisions, you know, there's a lot. And so people are talking about it. The, our world is having conversations about morals. They just don't understand that they're trying to strive for something up here, that there's a standard. But that also leads to this next point. Why do we know that objective morals exist? Why have we had moral reformers? Okay, think about this. Pertinent to our, our, our place right now. Think about what happened here years ago with race relations. You've got Martin Luther King that comes in as a moral reformer. He comes in, he says, something is not right. Not just Martin Luther King, but think about other people throughout time that are moral reformers. They come in and say, there's something not right, and I'm going to dispel that. I want to put it down. I want, we need to change as a society, whatever that may be. We have reformers. Why do those people exist? And why are they praised in a society? Is because a society will say, there should be something more. There should be something right. Um, so uh, I'll, we're going to allow this to go into our discussion next week. I won't give you the rest of the points because um, I want to talk about them. But this is going to help us when we try and understand what has God done, that we have a moral God and he gives us morals, um, and he created us in that way. So I'll leave these here, and then we will pick up our discussion next week. Appreciate you.